turn your Bibles to Psalm 133. Still looking at the songs of ascent, the songs where they would sing on the way up to the temple for three times a year for worship. I'm going to preach two messages out of this. I'm sorry, I'm breaking my promise. I've tried to make it all the way through. We've got one left. But today's part would have been the application for the for today. And so uh, you're going to be glad I split it up. All right. Psalm chapter 132. Start reading. I'm sorry. 133. And start reading verse 1. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like precious oil upon the head, running down to the beard of Aaron, running down to the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. I'm going to focus on verse 1. How good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Next week we're going to be talking about this in regards to the church, but today I'm going to be talking about it regard to siblings and to brothers and sisters and the family. When the book of Psalms was written, there would have not yet been the, the beginning of the church of the Lord. And so while we often use the term in the church, brothers and sisters in the Lord, and brothers with brothers and sisters with sisters, the context of this psalm would have been more fitting for the, for the home, for your children, for you young people here who are here today. If you have a sister and you're here today, raise your hand. You have a sister. If you have a brother and you're here, raise your hand. So this passage would have been more applicable to you with brothers and sisters and, and that's the way we're going to address it. Uh, some of you know the way I've grown up. I, I've told you about it. Uh, some of you may be tired of hearing about it, but I grew up in a rough home life somewhat growing up and I remember fussing and fighting being part of the of the day. I remember going to bed at night feeling like there had been too much fussing and too much fighting. And for that reason I didn't want to get married and I didn't want to have children. Where I was as a young man. And God blessed me with a, uh, a great wife and a good marriage and then God began to bless me with children, and I was very anxious about that. wasn't sure about that. Certainly would have never told you I'd have four uh, children. But one of the things I knew going into that is I didn't want to have a home that was filled with fussing, filled with fighting. It seems it seems like some people want a house like that, doesn't it? You know what I'm saying? They just fuss and fight all the time, but. I think any person who's saved doesn't want that. I remember when I first had uh, little children, I think Maggie and Abigail were born, and they were pretty young, and uh, Larry Burnett, who was Brad's father-in-law, you can tell Larry, not this one, my message, I'm talking about him. Larry Burnett had two daughters, Stacy and Kelly, and I don't know if you know them, and one time I was talking to Larry, and he told me a story about how he had prayed for God to make his daughters best friends. And I was a young father at the time, and I had never heard of anything like that. And that was pretty overwhelming to me. And I said, what? Sounds really good. I'm going to pray that for my girls, too. And I did. And I prayed it for my sons. And then I prayed it for all four of them. 
And so the title of this message is Making Brothers and Sisters Best Friends. Society says that's not possible. The world says that's not to be encouraged. But I believe the Bible, according to Psalms 133, verse 1, is actually encouraging it. It says how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. I shouldn't tell this part of the story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. One of my favorite movies of all time is, uh, I should know the name of it. And I should tell you, you'll play Hill of me. Red Dawn, there it is. Not a real good movie, but it's one of my favorite movies. And there's a scene at the end of that movie where the two brothers are sitting by the train tracks, and one of the brothers is dying in the other, other brother's, brother's arms. And he says a statement I've never forgotten. His brother is dying. He says, it's hard to be brothers. What a truth in that. It's hard to be brothers. It's hard to be sisters. Why is it so hard? Because you spend more time with them than anybody else. You do. You spend lots and lots of time with them, so you've got time to get tired of them, you've got time to get frustrated with them, and you spend a lot of time in closed-up spaces where you can't get outside and run around, you can't leave them, you can't get away from them, they're in the car with you, they're in your room, with some of your bedroom, in the room with you, and you can't get away from them. To this day, one of the most miserable nights of my life. I don't know how old I was. I was a young boy. We never went on vacation growing up, but we had finally taken the chance to go on vacation. And we were driving to Myrtle Beach. I was probably about 10 or 11. And we ran out of gas. Back in this, this is the days before credit cards. You run out of gas, you're out of gas. We, we had crept into the gas station and ran out at the pump, okay? But the gas station is closed. It was about 3 a.m. So we had to sit there from 3 a.m. until the morning when the gas station opened with no air conditioning in the station wagon, me and my three brothers and my mom and my dad. And it was one bad night. <laughs> Hot and sweaty and close and biting and kicking. At one point I, I, I begged him, just let me out, let me out. I just want to get out there. And we couldn't get out because it didn't feel safe where we were at, this part of the town we were in. And it was, and to this day, that's one of my memories of a, a really hard knock. I don't want home to be like that for my children. I know you don't want home to be like that for your children. We here as a, as a church have taken it as a priority to encourage the family, in particular to encourage strong Christian marriages and strong Christian fathers and mothers. And in, in doing that, we have learned that your children's relationships with each other is a training ground for how to be a proper spouse one day. Because if you can't live with your brother, you're not going to live very good with a spouse one day. And so that's a beginning training ground. We're going to look, first of all, at Cain and Abel. We're going to look at three different groups of siblings in the Bible. If you throw me the Bible, it's to Genesis chapter 4. While you're turning there, let me say something about Cain and Abel. Cain was the first child ever born after creation. Think about this. The first child ever born after creation, born to Adam and Eve. He was the oldest. Abel was the second child ever born out of, after creation. And Cain killed Abel. The first child ever born killed the second child ever born. There's... 
there's a lot of truth in that. There's a lot of reality of depravity. You would think the first kids after Adam and Eve would be, you know, a little bit messed up. <laughs> and it would gradually get worse as time went on. It would get worse and worse and worse. But this is the first family. This is the first two boys born. And one of them murders the other. I know parents, sometimes you feel like in your home, it's bad. And, and there's a lot of fussing, a lot of fighting going on. But to think about one of your children kill the other shows the depravity of sin, how strong and how great it is. And children in your home, no matter how much you love God, children in your home who are not taught to love God and love each other are murderous in their hearts. And they will grow up to hate their siblings, not to love them. And so I'm encouraging today for parents to act. Parents to make a decision, to make a declaration about your home and say, my home is not going to be a place of blessing body. We will not put up with it. We're going to, not going to allow our children to fight every day and fuss every day. We're going to teach them how to love each other and we're going to teach them to love God with all their heart and soul, mind and strength. Cindy and I did that as, young, as a young couple. We said we will not have a home fussing and fighting. And it has to start in marriage. And then it has to go on to the children. We would often say things like, our children will get along and they will like it. We would say that to them. And there is the old saying, you will love each other in this family even if it kills us. And that comes probably from the story of Cain and Abel. Let's look at it. Genesis chapter 4. Verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived with more pain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Let's stop right there. This is where it started rough. Cain was a, was a gardener. Abel was a man who was of the woods. He was a he was more like the, the rancher top guy. The manly man. Cain would have been a little lesser than that. Verse 3, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flocks and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. But the Lord did not respect Cain and his offering. Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, you will not will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at your door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and came past when they were in the field, and Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. I am I my brother's keeper. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So if we look at this story, I'm just going to draw out some points for parents and children to live by in, in brother and sister unity. First of all, parents must parent the heart. We've talked about this several different times in different messages I've preached. But when you train and discipline your children, it must not be external discipline. It must be that you're trying to gain the heart. And there's something that happens in verse 4 
and 5, it says the Lord respected Abel's offering, but the Lord did not respect Cain's offering. There was something that they gave the offering, and I, I don't believe it's what they gave, it's how they gave it, that, that God had a problem with it. The Bible teaches us that Abel's offering was an offering by faith. We see that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. Let's look at that there on the screen. By faith offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. So it's not because his sacrifice was better than Cain's or cleaner than Cain's. It was because his sacrifice was faith. Well, where does faith come from? It comes from your heart. And so Abel had some sort of view of God and his giving to God that Cain did not have. He had faith. And so because his heart was not right, his actions did not matter. Cain gave a good offering that you can write out in the margin of the Bible it's on verse 4 and 5, the beginning of religion. You know, we use religion in our church as a bad word. This is where religion started. Cain did the right thing, but his heart wasn't in the right place and God didn't accept it. That's what religion is. He was going through all the right motions and doing all the right things, but it wasn't acceptable by God because it wasn't by faith. <clears throat> and your children can be obedient externally and disobedient internally. And a mom and dad have to be able to see that. You have to be able to look at them and know whether they're obeying from their heart or they're just doing what they need to do to keep them getting faith in or keep them getting in trouble. You can see this by the countenance. Cain's countenance reveals his disobedience. Look at verse 5. It says, God did not respect Cain's offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Word countless there is the word face. His face fell. You could see it on his face that he was angry and he was unhappy. What you could see on his face that his heart was disobedient. And so when a parent tells a child something to do and they roll your eyes at you or they frown at you or they just look sad while they do it, even though they're doing what you commanded them to do, they're disobeying. They're disobeying from their heart. And you're not winning their soul if you miss their heart. They're not going to turn to God if you miss their heart. It's not just good actions. It's a heart that loves God and trusts God. It says in verse 5, he was very angry and his, his face fell, his countenance fell. Look at verse 7. This is what God says. If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at your door. It's desirous for you, but you should rule over it. Look at verse 6. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? Here's God's response to Cain's disobedient heart that he could see on his face. God said to Cain, Why is your face angry? And why is your face fallen? Why do you look so mad? If you gave a good offering, why are you so mad? And I would encourage parents to do this. If you tell your child something to do and they, they look like an angry countenance and their face shows an appearance that's not happy, not joyous, Call them out. Why are you looking at me like that? Why, are you, why, why does your face appear so angry? Why is your countenance falling? That's what God did, and so that's what we must do. What he's asking them to do is give joyfully. If you look at verse 7, it says, If you do well, the word well there is joyful. In other words, God is saying to Cain, If you give it joyfully, will it not be accepted? And then he says that if you do not do it joyfully, sin lies at your door and it's desires for you and you should rule over it. So if you do this same, if you would have offered the same gift out of joy, 
It would have been well with you, Cain, but if but you did not do it out of joy, then so it is not well with you. That's why we receive tithes and offerings the way we do in our church. It's just here. We're not going to pass the chicken bucket in front of you and ask you to give tithes and offerings and make you feel guilty and twist your arm and give something to the Lord. If you want to do it, God says He, he accepts it gladly. If you don't want to do it, you just will not give it. Y'all know that, right? And so we don't push you to give tithes and offering here. We want you to do it out of a joyful heart to God because you know that God gave you every, absolutely everything that you have. It's all from Him. And so giving something back to Him is just a testimony of being able to say, Thank you, Lord, I recognize that everything I have came from you and I'm giving a little bit back. Just a little bit back. Not much in comparison. And so God is saying to Cain, if you had done this joyfully, it would have been right. And so in our family, when children were growing up, if they did something with external actions, but their heart wasn't in it, we made them do it again. And if their heart still wasn't in it, we made them do it again. So they would have to do it repeatedly until they did it with their heart. Because we don't want a bunch of religious children who look good externally, but they're rebellious internally. And their heart is hard internally. We don't know what uh, Cain's offering was based on. We don't know why he gave his offering. Maybe his parents taught him to do it. Maybe he just gave his offering out of competition with Abel. But we know this from these scriptures. It was not done joyfully and it was not done out of faith. And sin was lying at his door. To leave your child in a place of obedience without an obedient heart means sin lies at their door. In other words, for you to turn your children over to religious practices in your home by just doing what you say externally and not expecting it internally, you're raising religious children who do not own the gospel in their heart. They do not own the necessity of loving God. They may grow up and go to church, and they may grow up and do many wonderful and correct things, but what really matters is do they love God? Do they love Him with all their heart and all their soul? The devil wants our children to have works and an angry countenance and no joy. But God wants our children to have joy and faith in giving. The next thing we see in this passage is that Cain asked this question to God. Look at it in Genesis chapter 4, verse 9. The Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? This is Cain's arrogant response to God. And the insinuation here is from Scripture that yes, he is his brother's keeper. For him to reply like this means deep down he knew he was. And, and God goes on to say, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. God knew where Abel was when he asked this question. And Cain knew where Abel was when God asked him this question. But his response, am I my brother's keeper, is to shun his responsibility of not only keeping his brother's life, but holding his brother's death in his own hands. Our children are each other's keepers, and they're to be called that. Matthew Henry, some of you have read this commentary, he said this, a person who is unconcerned about the affairs of others is a person who speaks pain's language. If you don't care about the things of those beside you, especially your brother or your sister, you're following the line of Cain instead of the line of God's righteousness. Philippians chapter 2 verse 4 says, Each of you should look out not only for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. 
In our home, that is a heavy verse that we must carry. That our children would desire their siblings to be blessed. I see so many times now when you go to a child, young child's birthday party, and the, the child who's having a birthday getting all the presents, the other siblings are mad, or maybe even crying, because they're not getting the presents. And so they're, they're only thinking about themselves. They're not happy over their brother's birthday and happy over what their brother is getting. And it's a parent's responsibility to teach them that. And, and the way you teach them that is not by getting all the children presents on one of the child's birthdays. It's not how you solve it. You solve it by causing them to take joy in what their brother's getting, to love it when their brother is blessed, to rejoice when their sister is blessed, I'll give you two illustrations of this example. The first one is of James and John. You don't have to turn there. It comes from the New Testament in Mark chapter 10. You remember who James and John are? They're two brothers in the New Testament who are called the sons of thunder. I don't know why, but that's what they're called. Must have been pretty rowdy before they got saved. They came to Jesus one time and they said, Teacher, we do what we ask. And he said, What do you want me to do? Jesus said, What do you want me to do? And they said, Will you grant to us that one of us can sit on your right side and one of us can sit on your left side in heaven? Of course, Jesus said, no, I can't give you that. It's not up to me to give. And he said, you can, would you be baptized with the cup I'm about to be baptized? In other words, would you die on the cross like I'm about to? And they said, sure we would, Lord. And we know that probably that wasn't what they understood at the time. However, both of these guys did go on to be martyred later in life for the Lord. But Jesus goes after that question and he, and he tells the story. When the ten heard of it, that is the other ten disciples heard that James and John had asked this question to sit on Jesus' right. It says they began to be very displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and he said, You know those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so with you. But whoever desires to be great among you shall be your servant. And whoever desires to be first shall be a slave. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So here are these two brothers. They wanted glory. They wanted to sit on the two sides of the throne of God in heaven. And God's answer to them is, he says, those who will be cheapest in my kingdom will be the greatest servants. They must serve most. If you know anything about me, you know that this is a role that I believe that God has called me to as a pastor, that if I'm going to be a leader, I must be a servant. It's why when we have fellowship dinners, I always try to be the one, if, if possible, to serve the drinks at the first of the line and to be the last one to eat. I'm not doing that for you. I'm doing that for me. I'm doing that to remind me I'm to be the chief servant. So ladies who try to stop me from doing that, please don't stop me from doing that. I need to do that. It's something I need to do. It's just a small token. It's not much, but anybody who's going to be a leader must be a servant. And in our homes, our children are jockeying for position. The oldest wants to take the lead. The youngest, for sure, wants to take the lead. And everybody in between, in between takes their place. But those that are going to be greatest in our homes would be those that would serve most. To train our children that servanthood is the greatest leadership you can have. Those that would do the dishes most. Those that would do the laundry most. Those that would do things in a servant way unto God will begin to understand what it means to be your brother's keeper. 
the greatest in our families will learn to serve. Another illustration I want to give you is the illustration of Joseph in the Old Testament. Remember, you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then Jacob had 12 sons, and one of those sons was Joseph. Remember the story. Okay? I'm not going to do a talk on Joseph, but I'm using him as an illustration twice in this message. Joseph was one of 12 who... Jacob gave him, remember, a coat of many colors. Remember that young people? A coat with lots of colors on it. A fancy coat. And all his other brothers and sisters were mad about it, especially his brothers. And so they sold Joseph into slavery. And he went into slavery really for something he didn't do. He went into slavery because his dad gave him a coat. And then later in life, he's put into the prison for something he didn't do. He goes to prison because he was accused of something he didn't do. But God and God's sovereignty raised Joseph to a position of being in charge of all the food in the whole land of Egypt. Joseph is in charge of all of that. And Joseph had this view of things. He said to his brothers, you meant it to me for evil, but God meant it to me for good. And think about what Joseph did. All his success, Joseph was a successful businessman. He, he's in control of all the food of the whole country, of Egypt. All of his work in life went towards this one goal of being a leader in Egypt. But everything that Joseph accomplished, all of his accomplishments, all of his work had accomplished and all of his success had accomplished, what did it do for him? It gave him the ability to save and bless his brothers, his family. Why don't you think about that for just a second? Men, think about if all the gifts and all your talents and all the success you've been given by God was so that you could help your brother. That's pretty shocking. We don't think like that much anymore, do we? We tried to raise our children to think like that. To, to know that if one had more than the other, maybe it's because God gave you more to help your brother. If one of you had more money than the other, maybe it's because God gave you more money to help your sister. To help them when they have a need. Pay for something that they can't pay for. Do you see Jesus in this? Here's Joseph who has been rejected by his brothers and rejected by the kingdom, going to prison for something he didn't do. And God raises him up and gives him a powerful position of leadership, a powerful role in the community, a powerful standing in the kingdom of Egypt. And Joseph had the insight, the, the trust and the faith in God to know that God did this for me, not for me. God did this for me, for my family. So I could bless my brothers and literally save their lives and cause them to be able to live when they would have died from starvation. Do you see Jesus in this? Jesus was despised and rejected by men, yet he was lifted up on the cross so he could bless and save all people. That's what it's all about. To raise children who would be sacrificial to that degree, willing to sacrifice things of their own, recognizing that God gave you what you have to be able to help their brother or their sister is a powerful thing in the home and a powerful testimony in this community. Number two. The second illustration we're going to look at is Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's, that's his three sons. Look with me in Genesis chapter 6, just a couple of pages to the right. Genesis chapter 6, we'll start reading in verse 9. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all the flesh 
had corrupted their way on the earth. And so basically God saw that everybody's living ungodly ways. And so God's ready to destroy all the people on the planet except Noah and his family. And what God's going to begin to do is going to call Noah out. He's going to give him a calling in life. And his calling in life is going to be to build a boat, a big boat that can hold you. You and your family, you and your sons and their wives, and two of every animal, every creature, and I'm going to destroy the earth, and you're going to live. If you look back at chapter 6, verse 3, it says, The Lord said to Noah, My spirit, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. It is believed that that is a statement of prophetic truth about what God's about to do, that 120-year period. And when he says this to Noah, he's saying, within 120 years, I want you to drive, build a boat, and I'm going to destroy the waters. I'm going to destroy the people of the earth by flood. So we know that it, it took Noah not more than 120 years to build this ark, but somewhere less than that. I think probably about 75 years if you study. And I, I did a lot of studying this week about the age and his children and all these things that happened. But somewhere probably around 75 years it took him to build a a boat. Now it took me three years to build my house. And I felt like that was forever. I can't imagine wanting to build a boat for 75 years. But here's the thing you must take from this. From the point these three boys were born, because they would have been just being born at this time, from the point they were very young until 75 years old, let's just use that as a, as a number. I'm not sure it's the exact time frame. Probably not. But let's just use that. Until the time they were 75 years old, their daily work was to do something that God had called their father to do. Their daily work was to work together, three boys and their dad, build a boat. It was something God called their dad to do. Get a, get a grip on this. This is the approach Cindy and I took when we were called to pastor a church. I say we. I, I told you if Cindy died about a year ago, I told you if Cindy died, I'm not sure I could keep doing this with God. I really mean that. I hope you know I mean that. I'm serious about that. We, when we took this, we were together. She's just as much called as I am. She's, and if you know her, you know this about her. She's just as much a part of this as I am. Sometimes she's probably just better than I do. We should just let her preach. I don't know. I'm just joking. I'm kind of joking with that. I kind of know. Uh, we take this same approach with our children. Because I'm called to do this. Cindy's called to do this. If they were born in our home, they were called to do that. They had to have ownership in this church. Ownership in what God's doing here. Ownership also in in being a chief servant among this church. Because that's what we see in this example from Noah and his three sons. They had to take ownership in working every day, getting up and going to build this boat. Now I remind you, when they're building this boat, because it's about the rave, yeah, they have a rave. Think about that for just a second. They build the boat that God told their daddy to build because it's going to rave, but it's never rained. Here's another really big point possible contention. The, the prophecy to God, from God to Noah about building a boat said that you will place on this boat you and your wife and your three sons and their wives. When God gave Noah this promise, they were not yet old enough to be married. So at some point during their life, they meet girls. And they're like, you know, dating or courting or whatever they're doing to try to woo them for marriage. And they're like, come on, help us start building this boat. It's never rain, but if you marry me, you get to become a part of this, building this boat. I mean, as a, as a, as a future father-in-law, I'm thinking about all kinds of problems right there. Like, if she buys into this, guys, 
Levi, if she buys into this, you should keep her. If she's going to come alongside of you and do something like this, like build this boat, you should keep her. That's what I'd be telling you. I know I would. This is just phenomenal that this family could come together with such a commitment to join together with three sons and their wives, helping their mother and father build this boat for years and years and years. We see in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, that they built the ark. We see in verse 21, if you look there with me, that they had to load all the food together also. Look at verse 21. And you shall take for yourselves of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. So they're not only got to build the boat together, they're gathering enough food to last for themselves to eat and for all these animals to eat. That's a ton of food. Then, then they're also gathering the animals. Animals, look at verse set, or chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female. Also seven each of birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive face the earth for after seven more days I will cause it to rain in the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. So he's, they're, they're having to work together to build the ark, to gather the food, and also to gather the animals. That's amazing. That's, that's some real working together. And so I want to encourage parents to plan things to cause your children to work together. Actually plan them. It's one of the reasons we embraced the farm life as we did because when you farm something there are things that have to be done every day that you don't have to go plan you don't have to go think of they just the things that have to be done so when you get up it's easy to say you do this and you do that and you do that um, but i want to encourage you to plan things if you don't have something that's happening every day give your children chores but don't just give them chores give them chores together that's the point of this point is that they were working together. Learning how to work together is as important as learning how to work. Learning how to work with somebody else is as important as learning how to work. And it's amazing how much you can get done if your children know how to work together. You can get way more done in a day than I could by myself. And now my boys are gone and I can't get as much done. So I need help. You want to send your children over. You don't have anything for them to do. I'll put them to work. It's amazing how much joy can be found when you learn how to work together. There's joy to be found in that instead of misery. The biblical principle that is taught in Scripture of older teaching the younger, that principle will flourish when you force, I'm asking you to force your children to work together. So just tell them to go do the dishes, tell them to go do this dishes together. The devil, the devil wants your children to be selfish and to work for themselves, and God wants your children to work together and for the good of the family. And so at this point, I want to encourage dads, you have to have a family identity, and it has to come with the voice of the Father. This is the way our family operates. We don't argue. This is the way our family operates. We don't hit each other. I mean, you know, there are certain things you don't do in our home. You don't peach people. You don't clap people. There are things you never do in this home. But along with that identity comes the identity of what kind of family we're going to be. This is how we work. This is how we do whatever. You know, it comes from this simple illustration. I, I don't remember who told me this when I was a young man. Uh, they were walking through my yard, and there was a piece of trash in my yard. And I think it was a paper plate. And I leaned over to pick it up. And this guy was, I don't remember who it was, was walking into my house with me. 
And he asked me a question. He said, would your children pick that same plate up? What does that mean? If they would, that means they have the same identity about my home as, as I do. That means they believe it's their home. And they would pick it up just like I would pick it up and get it out of the yard because I don't want my yard to be messy. Same goes for the car. Would my child pick up the trash out of my car? Then I would pick up the trash out of my car. What do you, where does that come from? It's not just born in them. You're training them to have an identity about your home. We keep a clean car, or we keep a clean yard, or, or we help mom do the dishes, or whatever this identity looks like. It must come from the voice of the father. And the things that you teach your children, that this is who we are. You have to be willing to do it. Men. If you're going to say, this is who we are as a family, you have to be willing to do that. And once you're willing to do that, and then you bring your children alongside you, and you say, this is who we are. This is how we handle this situation. We don't raise our voice in that situation. You've set the example, and you become the preacher in your home who's teaching your children a family identity. And we are lacking today for dads who are willing to do that. The third example Two brothers is Jacob and Esau. You turn in your Bibles to Genesis uh, chapter 25. You remember who Jacob and Esau, they were twins, they were born together, uh, and they sort of had a hard relationship for much of their life. We start with Genesis chapter 25, verse 27 and 28. It says, So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he hated his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. The problem with Jacob and Esau's relationship didn't start with Jacob and Esau. The problem with Jacob and Esau's relationship started with their mother and father. Because their mother and father had favorites. It says in verse 28 there that Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob. They had parental favoritism. The father favored one more and the mother favored another more. And by the nature of their favoring one over the other, these parents were creating a hatred and a jealousy among those boys. It started with the parents. I want to caution here, I'm going to use Joseph as an illustration again. Remember Joseph? 11 brothers hated him, sold him into slavery. To become the ruler of Egypt and save his family. Remember Joseph? We talked about him a minute ago. Joseph was also cursed by favoritism. We call it the generational curse of favoritism because you got to realize who Joseph was. Joseph was Jacob's son. So here we, we're talking now about Jacob and Esau, these two twins who are going to hate each other and be mad at each other for much of their life because of their parents' favoritism. But I'm using that as an illustration, the generational curse, because Jacob is then going to go on and show favoritism in his own family over Joseph and cause the same hatred and jealousy among his own family. We see it in Genesis chapter 37, verse 3 and 4. I think I have it for you there on the screen. Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a coat of many colors, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. So Jacob, as a young boy, hates Esau because his mother and father showed favoritism. And Jacob, as a man, as a father, shows the same favoritism to Joseph, his son, and causes his 11 other sons to hate. It says they hate Joseph. 
and they wanted to kill Joseph, and they sold Joseph into slavery. What's the point about this general curse thing here you're talking about? I'm saying stop it. If you could raise your hand, don't raise your hand, but if you could raise your hand and say, my parents showed favoritism, they liked me more than my brother, or, or they loved my sister, and they didn't ever give me anything or do anything for me. That was not right. That was wrong. We can see how it affected Jacob in all of his life because when he comes to the end of his life, he wrestles with God. Do you remember that story? He wrestles with God at Bethel. And he won't let go of God. And he says, I will not let go of you till you bless me. Why was, why was Jacob like that? He was Jake, Jacob was willing to fight till God breaks his hip, I believe. Out of socket, the Bible says. Because he says, I won't let go of you till you bless me. The reason Jacob was willing and wanted the blessing so bad is because he had never gotten that from his father. Jacob didn't get that from his father. His father never said, I'm proud of you, I love you. He loved Esau. Jacob never got that from his father-in-law Laban either. I'm not going to go deep into that story, but Laban just used Jacob, and he never got that from his father-in-law either. And so here's Jacob crying out to God, just bless me, just bless me. He wanted to hear what he never got to hear from his father. I take that back. There was one time he heard it from his father. You remember when he stole Esau's blessing, and he, he put hairy skin on his arm so his dad would think he was Esau? And and Jacob's dad, Isaac, he says, I bless you, son. And how must that have felt to Jacob to hear him say that for the first time, I bless you, son. But at the end of it, he said, I bless you, my son, Esau. The one time Jacob ever said, heard his dad say he's proud of him and bless him was when his dad thought he was his brother. He was wrongfully placed. And, and if you grew up that way, you know how hard that was. If you grew up not being the favorite, you knew how hard that was. If you grew up being the favorite... You knew your other brothers and sisters in some degree hated you because you were the favorite and, and you didn't like the fact that your brothers and sisters hated you. I'm calling upon you today to say that if you continue that in your family, it'll be a generational curse that'll go on for years and years and years. Stop it. Stop showing favoritism. It's not right. Though it's in the Bible, it is not right. It is wrong. So I encourage parents today to have fairness so that you stop jealousy and hatred among your children. Give several ways to stop to encourage fairness. Do the same things. Do, say the same things to them. Don't tell one you love them more than the others. Don't point out things like this. I just wish you were like him. You know how easy it'd be for me to say, Levi, I wish you were like Titus. Or Titus, I wish you were like Levi. That's demeaning. That's showing favoritism. I can pick on them more because Maggie and I would go here and I would <laughs> We have a lifelong illustration in our home. It's called, I call it the cutting the cake illustration. It simply goes like this. If there's something that needs to be divided in your home, one, one sibling gets to cut it and the other sibling gets to choose. That's it. This piece of cake, Maggie and I are going to split. I said I would pick on you. Abigail would cut it. Now you get to pick the piece you want. And do that in everything. Why are we doing that? We're trying to create fairness, equity in our home. Why? Because we don't want our children to hate each other and be jealous of each other and feel in love with one parent or the other. Along with this Jacob and Esau, we have to talk about forgiveness, teaching our children to forgive. It says in Genesis chapter 27, verse 41. 
So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Because they weren't treated favorably, the same, they hated each other and wanted to kill each other. They were no different than Cain and Abel. If I could tell your parents today, and I could draw you a chart, and I could say, if you do this when you die, if you do this when you die, you're going to talk to your children to hate each other and want to kill each other. You wouldn't want to do that, would you? I can't tell you how many funerals I have preached. When I'm going to preach the funeral, except the mom has died, I'm going to preach the funeral. One of the adult siblings will say, I hope my brother so-and-so comes from South Carolina. But he probably won't. I say, why won't he? Because he's mad at us. Who's he mad at? He's mad at the brothers and sisters, so he won't even come to his mother's funeral. I can't tell you how many times we've been to the funeral. The mother, let's say the mother died, and we, we serve them food after the funeral, and we have tables, you know, and we as a church try to feed them, and there are tables, and some siblings won't sit with other siblings because they're so mad at each other. This happened many times. I can't tell you how many times I'm at a funeral. The mother has died. And the adult, maybe, maybe in their 60s, the adult sibling says, this is the last time I'll ever see my sister with tears in their eyes. I'll probably never see my sister again after this funeral of our mom. mom. Why in the world not? Because we hate each other. We don't want anything to do with each other. We'll probably never see each other again. There must be forgiveness taught. Look with me in Genesis chapter 32. Go turn over there. This is the time when uh, Jacob and Esau are about to get back together after they've hated each other for much of their lives. They've grown up. Now they've gotten married. Now they have children. Their the occupations have grown. They've got lots of animals and things. Look at Genesis chapter 32, beginning in verse 4. This is when Jacob is about to go back to face Esau, knowing Esau wasn't killing him. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau. This is what Jacob said. Your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, and donkeys, and flocks, and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. Then the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you, and 400 men with him. Think about that. They're about to meet, and Jacob finds out 400 men are coming with Esau. He's scared. Verse 7, so Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him, and the flocks, and the herds, and the camels, into two companies. Stop right there for just a second. Jacob is afraid because he knows Esau hates him and wants to kill him. He finds out Esau's afraid of 400 men with him. These are two brothers. These are two twin brothers. Twins are supposed to be closer than anybody, right? Yeah. And they hate each other. He's afraid Esau wants to kill him. And so Jacob and Esau, these two twin brothers are divided. And now in verse 7, it says what Jacob does. He divides his family and his people are with him. Why does he do that? He's hoping that if Esau comes upon them, he'll kill half of them, but half of them will get away. That's the point here. A divided, a divided family creates another divided family. And you can say, oh me. A divided family now, brothers and sisters that are divided now will create a divided family later. Again, it's generational. Look at Genesis chapter 32, verse 11. He says, Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he comes and attacks me. And the mother with, my, and with the children 
For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea is told of God, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. So he lodged there the same night and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother. Here's what Jacob does. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 poles, 20 female donkeys and 10 foals. And he delivers them to the hands of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass over before me and put some distance between successive droves. Underline the word droves in verse 16. Here's what, that, here's what Jacob's doing. He's afraid that Esau is going to kill him, so he's preparing a gift. A gift of lots of animals. It's not a small gift. It's not a little watch. There's lots and lots of animals. He says, I want you to give, send them to him in droves. That means, and he says in the end of that verse, verse 16, space them out. He's like, if you look back at verse 14, it's like saying this, 200 female goats. He wants one guy to mark 200 female goats up to Esau. Say, this is for you from Jacob. With love. And then gives some space, maybe 100 or 200 yards, and now he's going to march up to him 20 male goats. And next is going to be 200 lambs and 20 rams. And he's spacing all these gifts out. like They're, they're called droves here in the Bible. It's kind of fitting. He's going to hit him with this gift, and then hit him with this gift, and then hit him with another gift. He's hoping that each gift, Esau's heart will grow a little bit softer, and he will forgive him. Look at Genesis chapter 33, verse 1. Now Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. Again, he divided his family so they don't all get killed. And he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and her children last, and Joseph last. He crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau, verse 4, it's a beautiful verse. Esau ran to meet Jacob, embraced him, fell on his neck, kissed him, and they wept. He ran to him, fell on his neck, kissed him, embraced him, hugged him, and they wept. Boys and girls, you must be able to forgive your sisters and your brothers. That's the point. Parents must be able to teach you how to forgive, and you must be willing to forgive. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. says, In me, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgives you. Young people, young children, the same way God forgives you is the way you must forgive your sister or your brother. It says there, be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Your heart will be tender, not hard, but tender, soft. You would break your heart if your brother's mad at you. You would break your heart if your sister's mad at you. Let me give you four steps to forgiveness. It's similar to the process we use in discipline, but this one's a lot shorter. Number one, if you're in your home, parents teach them these four steps. I'm sorry for, and you fill in the blank. That's the confession. I'm sorry I lied to you. This is one brother to the other brother, one sister to the brother. I'm sorry I lied to you. And then the next thing they say is, will you forgive me? Sorry's not the end of it. Sorry's not enough. You need to bring some restoration. And to bring restoration, there must be forgiveness. Will you forgive me? That's a question. It's a request. And then as a parent, we would require, require forgiveness from the other sibling. And I do mean require. It's expected. If one of your children asks the other child for forgiveness, the parent holds an accountability, a required accountability that you will forgive them if they rightly ask for it. 
If they ask for it with a right heart, in a sincere way, confessing their wrong to you, and you ask for it, you will give them forgiveness. Why will you give them forgiveness? Because that's what Jesus did for you. You say, but it's hard for a young child to forgive a brother or a sister. Yes. They're learning the cost of forgiveness. Forgiveness costs. Jesus gave his life to forgive you. And he forgives you entirely. Completely. Washes it away as far as the east is from the west. And he does it for you repeatedly. It's amazing. We get tired of asking him for forgiveness. He forgives us so much. So we require forgiveness. There are two things I've disciplined most harshly in my home. The first one was not being nice to your mom, disrespecting your mom. That got the greatest discipline in our home. The second greatest discipline in our home was an unwillingness to give forgiveness. Because that is Christ-likeness. That's what Jesus did for us. And it's hard, and it costs to forgive somebody, but you've got to learn to give forgiveness and, and believe that you're forgiving them the same way Jesus forgave you. And then the fourth step is love renewed. You know, I love you. I love you. Hugs. Yeah, brothers having a hug. Sisters having a hug. Brothers hugging. Sisters. I want to just tell you that I've only ever been in one service in my whole life. And it was in, in, out in Florida. I used to go and preach revivals. I told you as, as a young man, Mark Hall, the now Captain Crowes used to go with me and we would he would sing and I'd preach. And we're in a small church down there one time and I preached a sermon on forgiveness. I didn't have a lot of faith for him what was going to happen to the invitation. They gave an invitation asking God to cause people to get up across the aisles and tell each other they're sorry and ask for forgiveness. Probably Mark singing more than preaching. But when Mark would get me saved, it's a song of invitation. People literally were crossing aisles, going across the other seats, adults, and asking each other to forgive them. I've never seen that, that one time in all my life, and it was so beautiful. Today, as we close the service, I'm going to have everybody, not yet, I'm going to have everybody close their eyes and not peek around, but I'm going to ask our young children, and the youngest of ages, if you've got a brother here or a sister here, that your heart is tender and you feel like you've wronged them in some way, and you want to ask for their forgiveness. But during this time when we close our eyes and bow our heads to, to go to him and say, I have wronged you for say you can whisper it. Will you forgive me? And I'm going to expect in our church that the other sibling would say, I forgive you. All you got to do is hug you and you can go sit back in. Does everybody understand? Say, well, that's really bold. There's something we learn, even as adults. When God tells you to do something, if you don't do it immediately, most of the time you end up not doing it. God's laid it on your heart today to apologize to a sibling. I want to encourage you to seek their forgiveness today. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? It could be an adult too. Okay, it's already started. If somebody wants to go to a brother or sister and ask for their forgiveness, young or old, would you do that right now? And just confess what you've done and ask for their forgiveness with a tender heart. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the families that you've given us in this church. Lord, we pray that our families would be a safe haven, a refuge where God is found, where hope is found, where love is found, and they would not be 
feuding places filled with violence and fussing and hatred and anger. God forbid that our homes would be that way. Father, don't let it be so. Pray for our men today, Lord, that you give them courage like never before. That they're going to stand up in their homes and not allow it to be saved. That they're going to parent towards a unified home. Brothers and sisters that love each other, are real with each other, and are willing to ask for forgiveness when needed. Father, I pray that you would move mildly among us. This would be one of the greatest transitions in our in our families that could ever occur. It's so miserable for little children to grow up fussing and fighting. It's so miserable for men and women to be in marriages filled with fussing and fighting. And it don't have to be so, Lord. You didn't create us to be so, Lord. And I pray that today you would make moves of courage in our men that would cause it to stop. It would it will never stop completely, Lord, but it would be squelched to a great degree by the leadership of our men in their homes. Let it be so, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Help us, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us?